KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. It's Women's History Month, and we're taking a deep dive into how the economic crisis caused by the pandemic is impacting working women. 2.5 million women have lost their jobs or dropped out of the workforce. The pink collar recession. We must see the elephant in the room. Racism, power, and control. When I do start re-entering the workforce full-time again, do I put online school facilitator on my resume? From disparities to dollars, we dig in. Then they've launched a campaign focused on making schools sanctuaries for the most vulnerable. Having like parents be welcomed and like language access. The immigrant rights group hoping to bring healing to education. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the pink collar recession. That is the real world economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis on women. For hundreds of thousands of women, the crisis has decimated their work opportunities and for millions more substantially increased their unpaid care work as they pick up the reins of childcare and beyond. So how will the COVID-19 economic crisis impact the effort towards women's equality? How about the effort to close the gender wage gap. With me to discuss this flashpoint is Diane Corman-Levy, Executive Director of Women's Way. We also have Brenda Shelton-Dunson, Executive Director of the Black Women's Health Alliance. And finally, we have Jen DeVore, President and Co-Founder of Better Civics. She's also a mother who quit her job to help her daughter through virtual learning. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. First up, Diane, um, the COVID-19 crisis has had a severe impact on women. Could you just kind of lay the foundation of this discussion for me? Yes, the COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted all women, and particularly Black and Brown women. But nationally, 2.5 million women have lost their jobs or dropped out of the workforce. In December alone, 140,000 Americans dropped out of the workforce. 100% were Black and Latino women. And before COVID, women were the majority of the workforce that we worked very hard to get to that point. And now with so many women dropping out, this is devastating to the economic security of women and families. And the reasons are because women account for 74% of employment and high contact occupations like retail, uh, food services, hospitality. And of course, you know, those were hit really hard. And the other big issue, which we'll probably hear from Jen about, is a lack of childcare infrastructure or family forward workplace policies. So many women are dropping out of the workforce because they have to take care of their children and also just sick family members, elders. And because we don't have a strong childcare infrastructure, many women just can't even stay in the workplace. So it's been devastating to women, all the progress that we made. And I just want to say one more thing, because women are dropping out of the workforce, they're losing, they're losing revenue now. And that has a long-term impact in terms of their ability to retire and build savings for the future. So it's, it's really, at, we're at a crisis point in this country, to be honest. 
Yeah, and I heard one statistic, and I want you to try to put this in context. They said women have been three times more likely than men to leave the workforce due to childcare disruption. We thought, you know, gender roles had shifted or had started to shift. What did this teach us, Diane? It teaches us that still the women are predominantly the ones that are taking care of children, all the child caring, all the caring in this country that it still falls on women, even though women were at one point the majority of the made up the majority of the workforce. So there's still these biases that women are supposed to work. They're supposed to take care of their children, take care of their parents. And then of course, there's a whole sandwich generation where you're taking care of your your elders, your mother and your children at the same time. And so we have a long way to go in terms of gender equity and the biases that are inherent in every system in America, both grounded in, in sexism and racism. And I think we have to look at it through an intersectional lens of the, of the impact of particularly black and brown women because of the intersection of race and, and sex in this, and gender in this country. That's a perfect transition to Brenda because, you know, they say when uh, America gets a cold, black and brown folks get pneumonia. And, um, and in this case, black and brown women have been dragged through this. It's a crisis within a crisis. It's a situation where we have felt the double whammy and the racial and gender intersectionality. It has impacted us. When you look at the workers, individuals who worked in the service industry, the hospital care assistants and janitorial staff, et cetera, those individuals were directly impacted and essential workers. That's the other part of it. They were and are essential workers still required to go to work because they could not afford not to go to work. So you have a situation here where you have black and brown women working on the front lines mm. in these jobs, exposed to COVID-19 on a regular basis, but still have children and others that they have to take care of. How are they handling this? As you continue to peel the onion back, they're living in close quarters during a mm-hmm. pandemic mm-hmm. and they may be caregivers. The income level has decreased. So there's an issue as far as food. All of those issues just ramp up and it, the economic stability and social environmental factors have a direct impact on health outcome. The health disparities of Black and Brown women and men in this country is at two to three times greater. Whether it's hypertension, blood pressure, all of those issues that are directly affected and makes one more vulnerable for COVID. It's a crisis within a crisis. Yeah. And, Yeah. and, And it's skewed with, you know, our systemic inequities and the the racism that did not just begin with COVID. You know, women had made so much progress. Black and brown women were behind, but we were seeing movement happening. And then COVID, wham. And I want you, Jen, to come into this conversation. You're gainfully employed, living your life. 
and then COVID hits and you had to make a decision. Tell me what happened and why you decided to, to quit. Prior to COVID, I was unemployed for about nine months and it was really hard to find a job and find one that was a right fit for myself and, and to balance my family life. I have a second grader who's um, about to turn eight next month. It'll be her second birthday in quarantine, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. And I had finally landed a job And my first day was March 13th, 2020. And it was a job, you know, I work in civic engagement. And so it was a job that involved in-person work and traveling around the city and going to different communities. And within a month, the position was put on hold indefinitely. I had a great support system, right? I had everything in place you would think you would need to succeed. I have a supportive partner. I had a supportive team at the company that I had worked at. And so I was able to pivot my job and and my responsibilities to still make it work. But having two parents at home, working full time, and a child who's, you know, a baby, she's seven, going through virtual learning, it was a nightmare. And we had a breaking point where it was probably sometime in August. And my daughter and I were sitting on our kitchen floor crying, we were arguing about something, I wanted her to turn her camera on for her math lesson, and she didn't want to turn her camera on. And it's these arguments that I'm sure every parent at home is having with their kids now. And it just I I couldn't do it anymore. And I decided to talk with my husband, we made the decision together. And I resigned. My husband has, was making more money. So when we think about what was in place before COVID um, with these disparities in gender equality, he had a steady job. You know, I had just started my job a few months ago and it just made sense. And to be honest, I wanted to be at home. I wanted to be there for my daughter. The mental health of our kids is just so fragile right now. Um, and so so I left my job and, and I'm doing consulting work right now. I needed to be in control of my own hours. I think that was the biggest thing. Um, It's not that I'm not working. It's that I'm working what feels like all the time. And what's so disheartening is that my scenario is one of the best case scenarios. And it's still so hard. You know, I heard this great, great quote the other day. It's, we're not all on the same boat. We're in the same storm but we're not all in the same boat on the same boat. And um, that's just, it just like, it gives me so much emotion just thinking about it, you know, what everyone's going through. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think about what Jen said, uh, both Diane, Brenda, you hear her, she had a, she had a good support system and still could not make it work. What kind of impact is it going to have? Because we already saw few women at the top, few women being able to uh, juggle so much in order to to move it. What type of long-term impact are we talking, Diane? Well, I want to say before COVID, the gender and racial wealth gap in this country was horrific because of historical race policies that were grounded in racism and sexism that intentionally denied women and particularly black and brown women access to to assets and building wealth. So before COVID, black and Latino women own less than a penny compared to a single white man, Mm -hmm. you know, and it hasn't improved over 50 years. And, and there's a, there's a data point that says if these current, if these current trends continue across economic health, political and education equality, gender parity, which is grounded in racial parity, will not be achieved until 2133. This was before COVID. Now, 
women, particularly black and brown women are dropping out of the workforce, which is gonna deepen the gender and racial wealth gap. And so when are we ever gonna see gender and racial parity unless we do bold, bold policies and bold solutions, which is about redistribution of wealth in this country. When you start talking about that, Diane, people cringe because uh, no one likes to talk about the money. And it, and I want you to jump in here, Brenda, because this is this is serious. You have um, large swaths of people. I know that I know women um, who could not do those frontline jobs because they cared for an elderly person. They had a child with medical conditions, and they had a frontline job, and they had to quit and put themselves in dire financial straits. But they had no other choice because it was literally life or death. We must see the elephant in the room. Racism, power, and control. It is definitely there. However, we've seen how women, we can coalesce and we can be resilient and we can come together and make some shifts. It is going to have to be bold because when you look at the numbers, it will take a critical and substantial commitment to shift from the historical being and development that occurred with slavery, the power and control that exists within our country. We can take bites. First, acknowledgement. The fact that we're even having this conversation is is number one, an acknowledgement. I've seen there's been studies done that show this in real time. And so to me, that is part of the acknowledgement, but we need it broader as well. Bit by bit. And I I also think the yeah. old folks who were on the line, who was out of, at the Capitol back in the day during marching and, and all, coming together with the young folks. And we are doing some of that at the Black Women's Health Alliance with our Millennial Sister Circle. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be done. Before we talk about what some of these bold moves could be, right? I want to touch upon the mental health aspect of it, Jen, Mm -hmm. the pressure aspect of it, how you think you're going to get this train back on the track. You know, it's so interesting because when I had left my job back in August, a few weeks after, like into it, I was talking with somebody and they asked me, they said, you know, well, how do you think this is going to affect your career long term once this is over? And it had never even occurred to me because of how unpredictable the pandemic is and because of how especially at that time when information was changing every week. It just, it's so hard to even plan for the future when we don't know what the future is going to look like. Um, And I think it's interesting with what both Brenda and Diane said, it's so true. And we almost, we don't want to go back to normal. Like what is the the brave new world that we're going to step into? Um, (laughs) We don't, we don't know what that is yet. Um, But the pressure, I mean, it, it's on. And you have to think about how am I going to get through this day, this hour, this, this, you know, 45 minute lunch break every day um, where I'm like practically dragging my child to outside to get fresh air Um, and then think about, well, what am I going to do a year from now? Where am I going to be in my career when I do start reentering the workforce full time again? Do I put 
online school facilitator on my resume? Like, how do you, how do you spin that? So yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot to think about and you can't even really plan accordingly because of how unpredictable it, it is. What will employers, Diane, what will they have to do to accommodate these millions of women at this point mm-hmm. who have to take this uh, detour? So how do we sort of, you know, deal with this and then also set uh, ourselves up so that this kind of backslide, we have things in place. First, I think what Brenda was saying that uh, we have to just acknowledge that this economy is based on an economy of slavery. White and Black were created to put white, particularly white men at an advantage economically and to, and to, and to rationale why we can exploit certain people in our country, particularly Black people, right? So it's all a system of exploitation of workers, right? And that system ground in slavery has permeated every aspect of America. So, so the workplace has to change, well, number one, their culture. And we are the culture. So I'm going to say to white folks out there, and we're doing this at Women's Way, we have to do our first internal work and start dismantling our own internalized anti-Blackness and white superiority because we do make up the culture. So we, as white folks, this is on us. We have to do this work. And so that's going deep into our racial identity. It's not just a bias training, which is important too, but how are we have internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness and how do we become an anti-black racist or, or individual and organization? This whole thing about DEI, which is great. Oh, let's hire a black person. Let's do, you know, if you don't have a culture that is truly inclusive and respects and treats people fairly. I mean, that article that just came out, the report, how women have to work 10 times harder to prove themselves. They don't have the supports. There's microaggressions happening every day. They don't feel safe in the workplace. And this is in all workplaces. That's a cultural thing that's grounded in white supremacy. And that is the heart, I think, of what work that employers have to do. And that's a hard discussion, but let's have that discussion and we need to have it and then take action on it. And do you want to add to that, Brenda, and just kind of bring in some of the questions I asked Jen, how are the pressure on women of color mentally, physically, and then economically too? The mental and emotional impact of daily operating under the stress of not having employment or having employment, but being afraid that you may be bringing the virus home to your mother that you are assisting and caring for, and your children are not in school, but you had to leave them there with your grandmother who to help care for her. So what do you do? That is a ripple effect on your physical health as well. As far as the diabetes and the hypertension, it becomes a crisis within a crisis. So what we have to do, rise up and see it it in the face and empower ourselves to stand and move forward and look at and identify supports within the community Now, the mental and emotional supports, as far as uh, counselors and providers, there has always been a stigma in the community. But I tell you, we're seeing some shifts. 
Yeah, I've been seeing a lot, of, especially during COVID. I, I could tell you one thing I see it as being positive. People are getting therapy. It's forcing people to deal with their health. If you survive this, you're like, I'm going to deal with whatever I need to deal with. And so it's, I want to kind of just kind of wrap this, this discussion up and talk about the work that we need to start doing now going forward. I, I know, um, you know, Jen, you, you hadn't really given it thought to how you're going to you know, put it together, but I want advice. I mean, this is like, we're in a place where we need to start thinking ahead. Seeking, you know, the mental health is really important from professionals, but also if you have a network of friends and family that you can continue to talk it through with is incredibly important and, and leaning on that network as we do start to figure out how we re-enter the workforce, because that's going to be a whole other shift too. Once mm-hmm. we do start to come out of this, we have to figure out schedules. You know, the childcare issue is still going to be there. The minimum wage is still mm-hmm. going to be what it is. You know, without things like more stimulus, without child tax benefits, without unemployment, like moms that leave the work, any parent that leaves the workforce because of the pandemic should be qualified for unemployment. Um, I don't know how anyone thinks that we're going to all get through this without the financial support. And to go back to Diane's original point earlier, it's about the money. Like, how are we going to afford to re-enter into society? And and we don't even know what that's going to look like. So like it, it, people are stressed. They feel the pressure. There's angry. I'm like, I'm angry about this. Right. But we have to lean on our network and be there for each other and continue to have these conversations, not just with each other, but on platforms like your show, Sherry, where Mm -hmm. more people, people that aren't immediately affected by this, like we are, or some other people are like, can hear the stories. And and I want um, both Diane and Brenda tell me about what work your organization is specifically doing and provide us with your website as we wrap up. We started looking closely at what was going on when COVID hit. And we started support groups. We have a program, a wellness program, Primetime Sister Circle, focused on those comorbidities, not only comorbidities, but also the mental and emotional health and empowering women to access the healthcare system and to basically state if they felt that they were being discriminated against. So there 300 women had gone through this program talking about the mental and emotional stress. When it was time for us to vote, voting safely, we are looking at flattening the curve on the comorbidities and the health disparate condition so that by the time they reach the age of their parents and their grandparents, their health conditions will be stronger and they can weather the vulnerability. Our website is P as in Paul, B as in boy, W-H-A dot O-R-G. Final <laughs> word to you, Diane. So, you know, our mission is about advancing gender and racial equity and we provide grants to organizations that are led by women of color. And the reason we're targeting them is one, they get less than 1% of all philanthropic dollars in the country less than 1%. And they're they're the ones working on the ground with those most impacted by the issue at hand. So we have a rapid response general operating fund where we're giving funds and providing general operating support. They decide where the money needs to be used. And then we have the Women's Economic Security Initiative, which is our goal is that all women in the greater Philadelphia region will 
attain economic security. So it's an asset building framework. We're not interested in just making them a little more comfortable. We're talking about building assets. We launched a financial coaching program where we're, uh, women have access to financial coaching and we're actually scaling it right now by training. Our goal is to train 150 organizations over the next three years. We're 15,000 women will have access to financial coaching. And we found that it's very helpful. And the other big piece is changing the narrative. Narratives affect how we think about things. It's our mental models and that affects our decisions and, and, and policies. So we're centering the voices of women who are impacted most by this, black and brown women. And we just started a fellowship program where they're, be, they're gonna be learning how to tell their stories and marrying it with data to drive change to three target audiences, media, philanthropy, and policymakers. So our approach is to center those who are most impacted by the issue, black and brown women, they're at the table, co-creating, co-designing strategies, and they're gonna become the narrators. This is what drives systems change. So, so we're doing all this um, with multiple partners. Brenda, I would love to partner with you and learn more I, about it. Um, I just I love what you're say, doing. We just made a flashpoint connection. Yeah, yeah, no, did. no, I wanna partner with you. And, well, the last thing we just did was black women and, and um, healthcare was, and we talked about that, how that affects the wealth gap for yeah. black women. And you can learn more at our website, which is womensway.org. Movement with Melanie. We're having free virtual exercise with Melanie Marchand. She's a fitness expert, starts next week. Check out our website pbwha.org. Thank you very much. And with that, I want to say thank you so much to Jen DeVore, to Brenda Shelton Dunstan, and to Diane Cornman Levy for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this very important issue. Next up, they launched a campaign seeking assurances that schools will be sanctuary. Having like parents be welcomed and like language access. The immigrant rights group that's pushing for more healing and safety in education. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW, we are all about community. And a Philadelphia-based immigrant rights organization has launched a campaign designed to make schools a place of healing and safety for all students. Here to talk about our Sanctuary Schools campaign is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Executive Director of Puntos, Erica Guadalupe Nunez. Welcome to Flashpoint. 
Thank you so much for having me, Jerry. So first of all, what is the Sanctuary Schools campaign for folks who don't know what it is? Our Sanctuary Schools campaign at Juntos is a community vision for what we want schools in Philadelphia to look like. And our Sanctuary Schools campaign is not just envisioning um, schools without ICE, but rather developing community vision that sort of ex expands sanctuary beyond enforcement, but also to include safe buildings, culturally affirming pedagogy, having like parents be welcomed and like language access, and also dreaming about schools as a place of healing that, which is something that we've like, all, I think we've all talked about as a response to not just the pandemic, but the years before then. At Juntos, while we're an immigrant rights organization and a lot of our key focuses is around immigration enforcement, a lot of our uh, community organizing at Juntos, especially our community-led organizing, has been around response to schools and sort of like the, the right for quality education. Yeah. And so let's pinpoint this a little bit. What problem? Because there was something that sparked the decision to make this campaign. What was that? Our immediate sort of like that pinnacle moment that we reference a lot at Juntos. It was right over oh, over a year ago now, February 11th of last year, an immigrant mother was detained outside of South Philly school by ICE. She was detained by um, officers who were not in uniform, not in a marked car, and she was detained at a public bus stop outside the school building. What we learned from that moment that Philadelphia does not have a welcoming school policy, which clearly outlines sort of how staff and teachers should interact with ICE. What we're asking for is expanded framework of supports for immigrant families that could be impacted by enforcement, but also access to resources in their day-to-day -day when we're not under threat of deportation or detention. Yeah, and try to give some understanding of what families are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis when they send their your kids to school, uh, especially if they're undocumented. For example, families reference this incident with the mother being detained outside of school in Kirkbride in the same way they reference school closures from like 10 years ago as like issues that they've seen in the district. When we talk about the realities that our community members face face today is that one, there's still a lot of fear and a lot of distrust about the fact that a mother who left, who went to go drop off her child at a school was detained by ICE and sort of like there was an understanding of what sense like sensitive locations were and like ICE violated its own suggestions of policies. But also when you think about like the realities of the last year, I think it's compounded by the fear of a possible um, enforcement action, how systemic and linguistic barriers over the last year have kind of been compounded by the pandemic. And these are issues that existed before. For example, for families in this last year, it's been the lack of access to schools because of the um, ling language barriers. So that's a common common thing that our parents will mention is that they'll go to a school and there's no interpreter available. They'll be asked to wait hours or they'll be asked to come back another day because there's not an interpreter at the school. It's having issues getting their child on technology. The lack of like understanding, like cultural awareness, the idea that, oh, everyone got free Wi-Fi in the last year from Comcast Essentials, but that doesn't count the fact that like there's more than one child in a home and the Comcast solutions like weren't enough for folks. And so I think it's like, these are just two like really simple examples of issues that I think existed before the pandemic what had just become much more compounded with everything going on in our, in our lives. And a lot of these issues are not just for uh, immigrant families, they're for just families generally who are struggling right now. And, and especially if you're low income, 
and you're reliant on Comcast Essentials or you're reliant on all these things, then then it's a real struggle. And just tell us quickly about Juntos and the broader work that you all do. I think a common refrain for us within the Sanctuary Schools campaign is that it's not just sanctuaries for Latinx immigrants. It's not just sanctuary for immigrants. It's sanctuary for all. And the idea that schools should be places of healing, abundance, um, free of criminalization, like of true safety, right? With like strong infrastructure for everyone, right? And I think that's something that we hold very closely in our hearts. Juntos is a community-led immigrant, immigrant rights organization. And I always say we're community-led because that is what makes Juntos Juntos. And that's also what makes this campaign this campaign. And I would describe our work as being divided into three key buckets. Uh, we have our community organizing, which is our campaigns, which right now our key one is our sanctuary schools campaign, but historically has been the campaign to make Philadelphia a sanctuary city, to end the PARS database with in, increased like surveillance of our community. And then our other bucket I would describe as our education work, which right now primarily focuses on our work with youth. And one of our key youth programs is Fuerza, which is a youth leadership development program. And then the third bucket is our mutual aid work. It's something that we formed when I started working at Juntos a little bit under a year ago. And it was, it's all like, essentially it was a response to the pandemic and the fact that the immigrant community was being left out of local and federal relief efforts because of their immigration status. And we also take cases at Juntos. So folks will call Juntos and they'll say, hey, my landlord is trying to evict me. Um, And so our role uh, is help supporting that community member and one, making sure that, that they know their rights and two, supporting them in their own advocacy. Yeah, lots of work. You all are very, very busy. Um, and so how can people support you specifically with regard to the Sanctuary Schools campaign? We have a texting group and how they would get looped in is texting the word avisame, which is like, let me know. Basically in Spanish, it's spelled A-V-I-S-A-M-E to our text number, which is 33222. That's the way that we'll be sending like really key targeted updates around our Sanctuary Schools campaign, but they're also welcome to the connect with our organization um, by signing up for our newsletter, or if they want to be like more active, we have a very strong like volunteer poll. Wonderful. And so I want to say thank you for coming on Flashpoint. Erica Guadalupe Nunez, check them out at vamospuntos.org. Keep up the great work, Erica. So much to do. And thank you. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from internationally known journalist Tian Wei. Any society that fails to harness the energy and creativity of its women is at a huge disadvantage in the modern world. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.